0: First Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Well, it's been a while, but we have reached a section in chapter 4, verse 1, and ending in verse 12 in which Paul gives a a series of commands to correct the Thessalonians' behavior. If you remember um, from about a year ago, uh, Paul wrote this letter to encourage new believers in their faith, to exhort them to godly living, to give them assurance about the eternal state of believers who have died, and to defend his integrity as an apostle. Paul visited Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, uh, but, beha- but he had to leave because of Jewish persecution and opposition. So he sent Timothy, um, his disciple, to go back and spend time with this church to train them. And then in chapter 3, we learned that Timothy brought back a really encouraging report about their faith, about their walk with the Lord. Um, in 1 Thessalonians is one of Paul's first letters, which was probably written About around A.D. 50 or 51 in chapter four, Paul encourages the Thessalonians that they're growing in their obedience to Christ, but they have some more work to do. They have some more growing to do. They haven't arrived. In other words, Um, they shouldn't become stagnant. They shouldn't become satisfied with where they are in their walks with the Lord, Uh, the works of faith that they're doing. They need to do more and more of that. The truth that ties this whole section together in in First Thessalonians, chapter four is found in verse one. And it's the idea of living to please God. Look there with me in chapter four, verse one says there. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing that, you do so more and more. So the pinnacle of human existence, true heaven on earth, if you want that is living our lives ordering our lives in such a way that makes God pleased with us. I'm not talking about earning God or earning salvation. I'm not talking about doing good works to to somehow make God love you more. That's not what I'm talking about talking about pleasing God as Christians, how do we know if God is pleased with our lives for going the right direction? Well, it's the same way that the Thessalonians would know right there in verse one, by making sure that their lives were consistent with the apostles teaching. In other words, making sure that their lives were ordered by the word of God. The Thessalonians, as well as ourselves, should be constantly evaluating our lives according to God's word. Not to make us feel guilty, not to make us feel shame and and fear and terror, but to ensure that we are walking in a way that pleases our Father. Nothing is sweeter to a son or to a daughter than to receive the smiles of their dad. I know that for a fact. Nothing is sweeter to know that your dad is, is pleased with you. And as Christians we have a heavenly father who, who we should seek to please. When's the last time that you've sat down. Free from distraction. Turning off the TV. Shutting your phone off. And ask God to search your heart. And reveal sin in your life that needs to change. God, what parts of me are inconsistent with what you have revealed about yourself in your word? Paul takes this principle of living lives pleasing to God and begins to flesh it out for the Thessalonians. We saw last time we were together in verses 3 through 8. He says, Abstain from sexual immorality. In other words, if you want to be holy and pleasing to God, this is a good place to start. God has set clear, unmistakable boundaries for sexual pleasure. In fact, we said that he is the Lord of pleasure. Starting in Genesis one, continuing through the law of Moses, reiterated by the prophets and then supported by Jesus's teaching and the New Testament apostles teaching The only sexual activity that is pleasing to God is within a lifelong marriage covenant between one man and one woman. No matter what the Thessalonians may feel towards someone else, no matter what their culture says, they must surrender to their creator's standards of sexuality. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, that is your sin nature, you will die. Disaster. Destruction. Horror. Sorrow. Regret. Even physical death. This is what happens when we choose to cross the boundaries our creator has set. Then he goes on to say, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will what? You will live. So Paul's saying to the Thessalonians, he's saying to the Romans, he's saying to us, I want you to truly live. I want you to have an abundant, vibrant, joyful Christian life. In order to have the pleasure of God, the sweet fellowship of of God that you long for, you have to put to death the things that God hates. And that includes sexual immorality. Now to our scripture this morning, verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. We see in this section, we see a little bit of a transition from holy living to living in love, verses 9 through 12. So just as God's love is a holy kind of love, a pure kind of love, an undefiled kind of love, our love for God and love for one another should motivate us to live holy and dedicated lives to God. The more we live like God, in other words, the more we'll love one another. We're all familiar with the term brotherly love. This word was used by first century Christians to express this deep affection for fellow believers. Because the Thessalonian Christians had turned their backs on family idols. Because they were rejected by society. Because they refused to worship The false gods of the community, they had become like this new family to one another. This new body of believers. Paul emphasizes love in this letter quite a bit. Look back with me at chapter one, verse three. Paul says he gives thanks for them, remembering verse three before our God and father, your work of faith and labor of love. And steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they took this, they took special note of the Thessalonians' love for one another, just how hard they labored. This word labor is is an intense laboring, how hard they labored, how hard they worked to love one another. Go down to verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God. That he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So God the Father showed his love for these Christians by choosing them before the world began. Then Jesus demonstrated his love through willingly dying for their sins. Then the Holy Spirit loved them by awakening them to the reality of their sin and their need of a Savior, giving them full conviction. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writes, So we, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become Very dear to us. So Paul and and the others, the other the other co-workers of his had a deep affection for the Thessalonians. They they were willing to give up their own comforts. They were willing to risk their lives for them. They were willing to to enter into danger so that they could share the gospel and share their time with these new believers. Look in chapter three, verse twelve. Paul prays this. He writes his prayer down for them. He says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. So Paul prays that God would make them overflow in godly love for one another just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. Just when you think it's going to stop their love for one another keeps going. It's surprising. It's overwhelming. Um, how can they how Paul's praying that the people would question how in the world can they keep loving each other in this way? It's shocking. That's his that's his prayer there. So that they would have a clear conscience and that they would walk in purity before God love for one another our purity before God is contingent in how we treat one another. Last place, look in chapter 5, verse 8. Paul has made this argument that, that the, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will be very surprising. Um, and, And those who who are not in Christ, they will be in the dark. They will not be expecting it. But don't worry, you belong to the day. You don't have to fear. And he says in verse eight, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So being ready for Christ's imminent return means Christians, to truly believe he will return, they need to show that they believe that he'll return by treating each other well. Christ promised to come back to us. He promised to save us from the wrath to come. And he told us, in the meantime, while you wait for me to come and rapture you out of this world, in the meantime, make sure you love one another. Because he will hold us accountable to it. He will hold us accountable to how we treat one another on this side. So why all this emphasis on love in this letter of 1 Thessalonians? This is why. Because when suffering, persecution, trials, and hardship happen, when we are in intense situations, when we worry about the future... The tendency of our love is to grow cold and dim. We say things we shouldn't say and do things we shouldn't do to our brothers and sisters when we go through hard times. Like Paul reminds this church, when we mess up, when we act unloving, we need to be reminded to repent before God we need to be reminded to go to that brother or sister and ask for forgiveness, and then together we can all rejoice in the forgiveness that we've received at the cross of Jesus. Ephesians 4:32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So Paul reminds these believers. God himself has taught them how to love one another. How did he do that? God taught them to love one another by giving up his own son to die in their place that they might have eternal life. Romans 5, while we were his enemies, while we were completely opposed to God, fighting against God, Christ died for us. God determined out of his own free will, out of his own free grace and mercy to do good to us. God teaches us in the gospel itself. God taught the Thessalonians in the gospel itself. No matter how wronged I feel by another Christian, I am still to love, to sacrifice and do good to them. As Romans 12 says, I am to be at peace with all men as far as it depends on me. God was willing to go as far as giving up his own son to reconcile with me. So how dare I hold something against another brother or sister in Christ? Someone once said, we are never more Christianly. We are, ne- we are never more Christ-like. And when we forgive. Verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us they they showed this love not only towards one another, but to other Christians in other places. They showed hospitality to their neighboring churches in Philippi, in Berea and other towns nearby where Christians lived. There was no rivalry Between these churches. They weren't trying to outdo one another. Or steal one another's congregants. That type of rivalry in our day. In our culture is just so familiar to us. But why didn't the Thessalonians treat the other churches like that? Why did they show love to the other churches? Because when the walls of persecution get tighter and tighter. When the walls of persecution begin to close in on the people of God, we need one another more and more. As one church endures persecution, our admiration of them should grow as they continue to walk faithfully with Christ, which then encourages us to do the same. So we have to be careful then as as a church not to develop a competitive, rivalrous attitude with other churches that that lift high the word of God and proclaim the gospel we should pray for their spiritual growth and pray that they pray for our spiritual growth celebrate God's work in them because we're going to need each other in the days ahead it's a reality then he says in 1 Thessalonians says we urge you brothers verse 10 We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So God taught them the fundamentals of loving one another, but there's still more for them to grow and learn in. The Christian rests in his identity in Christ and rejoices in. In the righteousness that he has received in his union with Christ. But the Christian is never satisfied with the amount of righteousness he puts to use or appropriates. The Christian daily strives to kill more sin than the day before. And walk more in step with the Holy Spirit than the day before. Friends, Jesus is an eternal storehouse filled to the brim with righteous good works. And as we cling to him, as we walk by faith, those works are available to us to put to use for one another. As we grow in faith and knowledge of all that Christ has. We will depend on Him more and more in greater and even more increasing circumstances. Isn't that something? All of Christ's good works, all of His God-glorifying attitudes credited to you, that you might take them, that you might put them on and walk in them. You have access to them by faith. Don't ask for more patience because you have available to you from our Lord himself an infinitely more lovely patience than you could ever produce. Don't ask for love for a brother who is more difficult to love. Ask God to remind you that Jesus himself is the love that you desperately need for him. Jesus loves difficult brothers. Know how I know that? He loves me. He loves you. He is ready. He's willing to meet every one of your spiritual needs. Look to him. He is not miserly. He is not penny pinching in the grace that he provides. He will not tisk tisk you for coming to him again the thousandth time for help. He rejoices to meet your needs. He is glorified when he gets to fill up your cup again and again and again. This is why the pastors here cannot help but give you more and more Christ from the pulpit it would be evil to give you something else you need bread but that would be like giving you a snake he is all you need all that you will ever need and then some not self help not psychological mumbo jumbo not a 10 step process but christ if god will if if god will allow we will never Grow tired or weary of giving you Jesus. And we will, not, will never stop stirring up your affections for Christ. So Paul urges these Christians to love one another more and more. And it is through the grace supplied by Christ. In other words, if we have set a limit for how much love and kindness we will show to another believer... We are not showing Christian love. We've forgotten the love we have been shown by Christ. Or. We've never actually known it. It would have been enough for Christ to have simply died and secured our place in heaven. But he has done more and more and more. His divine providence upholds every atom in the universe, every cell in your body. And he works all things for the good of the people of God on this earth. Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. Christ is controlling all things everywhere. The heavens and the earth and under the earth. He has a purpose behind it all. Ultimately, Christ is concerned with everything for the sake of his own people. And everything else is being manipulated for our benefit and our good. This is astounding. But His love doesn't stop there. His eternal election gives us eternal assurance. In other words, the same hands that carry the universe carry your faith. We will not fall out of His love. He has guaranteed our eternal inheritance by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. He will hold us fast. Nothing can separate us from his love. He announces it over and over in his word. And we don't have to be afraid that he will ever leave us or forsake us. If God is for us, who can stand against us? No one can level a charge against us. It is God who declared us innocent in the courtroom and dressed us in his righteousness. This is breathtaking love, but that's not all. He is our advocate in heaven, mediating on our behalf, representing us second by second, hour by hour, year after year, ensuring that when God thinks of us, he thinks not of our great sin and treachery, but of his beloved son in whom he is well pleased God is well pleased with us not because God is well pleased with us because Christ never tires of standing before him in our place. As Jude 24 says, he represents believers faultless before the throne. Christ continually opens the door to his father's throne room that we might find grace and comfort in our time of need. That would have been enough. But that's not all. He's given us his Holy Spirit. All of us who have placed our faith in Christ, God, very God himself lives to empower us to live a life pleasing to him, to give us a taste of the kingdom every day, to lead us to eternal, everlasting joy in Christ and to reveal the scriptures to our weak and feeble souls And this spirit is the down payment of heaven. And he is the greatest token and pledge of Christ's love that there ever was. And the world cannot receive him. Puritan Thomas Goodwin wrote this. The Holy Spirit will tell you if you listen and not grieve him. The Holy Spirit will tell you nothing but stories Of Christ's love. All His speech in your hearts will be to advance Christ and to greaten His worth and love unto you, and it will be His delight to do it. Oh, He's loved us more and more. He is preparing a place for us in heaven and promises to return and bring us home with him. He has given us each spiritual gifts to be used among one another for each other's good and to point one another to Christ's undying love. He has placed us into the body of Christ and Christ himself is the head of her and he will guide us and protect us and lead us in paths of righteousness in the days to come. Hour by hour he intercedes for us praying for our faith, asking the Father for our good. Where is the limit of His love? Where is the end? We've said nothing about His kindness to answer our prayers, His faithfulness to lead us out of temptation. The eternal kingdom that we'll enjoy forever. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. And we will be united with those who have died in Christ. Because he was faithful to bring them all the way home to. When we reach the end of our days. We will say in some way, shape or form. Or think it. What John Newton, the great hymn writer said on his deathbed. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. In light of the unlimited resources that Christ provides and the eternal astounding love that he has shown, we cannot put limits on our love for one another. Holding each other at arm's length because of some silly perceived offense or even a real one. That's what the world does. Christians who know the love of Christ forgive. And we love. And we love more and more. And we love surprisingly. We love unexpectedly. We love undeservedly. Because that is what Christ has done. For us. John 1335. By this. Everyone will know that you are my disciples. Jesus says. If you love one another. Ephesians 5. 1 and 2 sums this point up nicely. Be imitators of God. As beloved children. And walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us in an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. God himself had taught the Thessalonians how to love. He did so in the work of his son, Jesus. In the work that his son is doing right now. God has taught us how to love as well. But Paul continues in in First Thessalonians chapter four, verse 11. He says, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands. That and is an important connector in the Greek, as it is in English. And this connector is telling us that that Paul is building on what he has already said. Paul's now getting specific. If the Thessalonians want to move on from the fundamentals of love and love more and more as God has called them to, they have to put into practice these three things. Now, if you remember the background of 1st Thessalonians at all, you know that these new Christians only had Paul for a few weeks in Acts chapter 17. And his time with them was filled with teaching and persecution. Paul left them under intense persecution. And what we'll see in the next chapter in the future is that these believers were confused about the return of Christ. Paul told them that the Lord would return in the air and take them home. But there was a problem. Some of their people had already died. And so they wondered if Christians who had died would be included in this rapture as well, which Paul will deal with in the next section. But there's a second confusion, and it's a really important uh, note that we have to make for this particular requirement that Paul gives. The second confusion was, well, they were enduring intense persecution. And it was so intense that some of the believers actually thought they were living through the tribulation. They're going through the day of the Lord, that it had arrived already. So Paul deals with some of that confusion in chapter five. He alludes to it. And then he spends an entire letter dealing with the, dealing with it as well. in Second Thessalonians. So apparently some within the church were hopeless. Some thought that Christ had abandoned them or their loved ones. Some thought that they were in the tribulation already. And so this led to all kinds of disordered living among the, these new believers, these new Christians See, eschatology or the study of end times matters. It does. It matters. When we take our eyes off the truth that Christ will come. When we are hopeless and we stop meditating on the truth that, tr- that Christ will make all things new in the end. We fall into some of these same traps that we're going to address here in a moment. So part of what it means to love one another, Paul writes, is to aspire to live quietly. To foster, in other words, a spirit of godly contentment. A settled thankfulness for whatever the Lord has given us. It's it's knowing that whatever we have is exactly what God intended to give us. He will surely meet all of our needs exactly when we need it through whatever means is best to receive it. Because I know that God is taking care of me, I don't need to draw attention to myself. I can live quietly. My emotions don't need to run at a high temperature. Jealousy and bitterness leave when I rest in God's sovereign care for me. I have no reason to stir up trouble or gossip or slander. Contentment in the glories of Christ saves me from a frantic, disordered, chaotic life. I don't need much, as Paul said, if I have food and clothing. If I have Christ, I am content with that. As we sung partially and as we typically sing, um, whatever my lot... You have taught me to say, It is well with my soul. One way to advance in love here at Princeton Bible Church or then at Thessalonica, one way to reach a deeper level of maturity in your own Christian life and my Christian life is to learn contentment, to be thankful for what we have. Head on over to 1 Timothy chapter 6, please. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3, Paul is writing to young Timothy so that he knows how to order the church of God, what to do. He says in verse three, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Paul doesn't give any quarter to false teaching. He doesn't handle it nicely. Listen to how severe he comes down on these false teachers. He he calls them puffed up, conceited, understanding nothing, craving controversy, quarrels. Evil suspicion, slander, dissension. It's not nice. It's not novel to hear false teaching. False teaching should anger us, should, should cause us to, to want to push it out and to get it out because of how depraved it is in God's eyes. But then he goes on to say, verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. False teachers stir up controversy. They cause unnecessary friction. They promote jealousy. But the gospel of Christ promotes godliness and contentment. Remarkable. The gospel of Christ does not divide. Of course, it divides believers from unbelievers. But within the people of God, the gospel of Christ unites. You want to know why there's so, dis- so much dissension within, quote unquote, Christendom right now? It comes down to this. The gospel. The gospel unites every tribe, tongue and nation under the headship of Christ. False teaching divides and stirs up controversy and causes people to want more and more and more and more and more jealousy over what others have. So if we want to make great gain in our Christian lives and in our love for one another, we have to rid ourselves of worldly ambition and the desire to meet The the current standards of the culture. It's okay if someone else answers the question in Sunday school. It's all right if you're overlooked for a certain position. It's okay if your hopes and dreams of ministry or life aren't met, because where you are is exactly where God has you today. It's no mistake. Bloom where you are planted. Do the best you can in the work you're given, in the strength that Christ provides, and let God sort out your future. And if it's his will, he will exalt you here on earth in due time. But in the meantime, be faithful with what you have. Give everything you've got with joy and thankfulness, knowing you deserve much much worse. Remember, you deserved hell, but you got Christ. Your identity is secure in Christ. Whether I have five people at youth group or 50 people at youth group, I am secure in Christ. And I know that I don't deserve a single one of those sweet people to be able to have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Don't deserve it. The Lord will meet all of your needs in the wisest way possible at the exact right moment. The second way to advance in love for one another, he says, go back to First Thessalonians chapter four, says, mind your own affairs. He's not saying live in rigid individuality. That's your problem. Stinks for you. That sort of thinking. That's not what he's talking about. We know that because of what he deals with in in the the next chapter and what he's really dealt with um, all the way through 1 Thessalonians, caring for one another. He's saying here, concentrate on your own lives. Take care of your own work. Don't meddle in the affairs of other people. Don't be a busybody running from one person to another to another to try to solve all their issues. The Holy Spirit is in them too, convicting them and changing them. Live a quiet, unobtrusive, unassuming, modest life when there's opportunity to serve and it's there. Do it. But you have your own affairs. We have our own business to take care of. Believe me, my household is difficult enough to run at this point. I am not qualified and I am not able to run your household as well. Finally, he says. Work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. God loves work. He not only showed his love for work in the act of creation, but he does so, as we saw in the act of providence as well. He is wisely and daily working all things for good for those who love him. Romans 8, 28. He's constantly at work. Jesus came to earth to work the father's will, and he lives in heaven to work as our intercessor. The spirit. Works to exhort us, to encourage us, to remind us of all that Christ has said. Therefore, knowing this Trinitarian love for work, Paul could write this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Abraham Kuyper, a theologian, wrote this. Whatever man may participate in, whatever man may do to whatever he may apply his hand, whether it's in agriculture, in commerce, in industry, in his mind, in the world of art in science, he is, in whatever it may be, constantly standing before the face of God. And above all, He has to aim at the glory of his God. Friends, you were, and I was, created to work. We were created to provide for ourselves and provide for our families, to labor intensely, to get calluses on our hands, to build, to cultivate, to bring order out of chaos. Christians who work hard and faithfully, whether they are CEOs or they flip hamburgers, are an incredible light and encouragement to the world and incredibly pleasing to God as they do it in the face of God. Whether you are watching children at home, whether you are you are a nurse in a hospital, whether you are directing music, whatever it is. You are working in the face of God and you can please him and glorify him in it. Just as if you were preaching on Sunday mornings. It is better to be the lowliest Christian on earth. The janitor or some, someone, in, someone who cleans or anybody. The lowliest Christian on earth in God's eyes is more glorious And more desirous and pleasing to him than the highest king. Because you work to please God, who made you and redeemed you by his blood, that's why you work so hard. That's why you go the extra mile. And that's why you do it honestly. Not because you're expected to do it, not because that's what your parents did but because you love the Lord. And that's what Christians do. So, just to wrap it all up. Believers who sacrificially love one another. Believers who live content lives. Believers who concentrate on keeping their own lives in order and faithfully carry out their duties in the workplace, avoiding dependence upon other people. These Christians are an incredible witness to their unsaved neighbors and family members. Why do you work so hard? Why are you so honest and why don't you take advantage? It's Because we follow our master, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we are so grateful that you put us exactly where you want us to be. And you call us to be faithful with whatever you have given us. And Lord, we know that man looks on the outward appearance, but you look on our hearts. Lord, I pray that we as a people at Princeton Bible Church would be known for our deep affection and love for Jesus Christ, for his word. And we would be known for, we would be known for, for our hard work for your glory. Lord, thank you for this time that we've had together. Thank you for our Thanksgiving meals with families and friends. Lord, I pray that we would learn to be content in whatever we have. In your son's precious name, amen.